Before we begin the episode, we'd like to acknowledge that we work, play, and learn on the unceded territories of many indigenous peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the BC Association of School Psychologists podcast. We are excited to bring you helpful ideas for your practice, supported by experts and research. This episode features a conversation with Dr. Jan Hasbrook and is hosted by school psychologists Kathleen Cherry and myself, James Tanaleau. Dr. Jan Hasbrook is a researcher, educational consultant, and author. She was a reading specialist and literacy coach for 15 years before teaching at the University of Oregon and later becoming a professor at Texas A&M University. She's served as executive consultant to the Washington State Reading Initiative and as an advisor to the Texas Reading Initiative. Dr. Hasbrook has provided educational consulting to individual schools across the United States and throughout the world helping teachers, specialists, and administrators design and implement effective assessment and instructional programs targeted to help low-performing readers. Jan, thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Mm -hmm. So Jan, we'd love to start off this episode with getting an idea of your background. Uh, and really understanding what brought you to this field, to this discipline? Uh, Well, it's uh, always fun to (laughs) review and go back and muse about that, the the beginnings. Um, Teaching was always on my radar, and I do need, I think, for uh, a lot of your audience are significantly younger than I am, so I feel the need to put that in context a bit, because honestly, when I talk to uh, women my age of my generation, uh, we didn't actually have a lot of choices in terms of career uh, presented to us. It really was fairly narrow. Um, uh, So you could be a nurse or you could be a teacher. Uh, Of course, we were all going to be homemakers of some sort. Uh, But early on teaching uh, got onto my radar. In fact, um, an, uh, a story, a family story that my mother used to always tell was the first day. I was the eldest of three girls, so I was the pioneer in everything school. But she says, and I don't think it was probably, uh, I don't think she made it up, that on the first day of kindergarten, I came home and announced at dinner that I wanted to be a teacher. So it it really did strike a chord in me very early on, an emotional chord. Many people who do teach want to be teachers who take teaching as their career, talk about it in terms of a calling. Um, I think that's true for nursing and a lot of other careers, but teaching has always felt like a calling to me. It is what clearly I feel like I was meant to do. Um, And uh, luckily, I had the opportunities to get some really what I would consider superb training in how to be a teacher and uh, entered the profession Um, as a reading specialist. I'd always imagined myself as a classroom teacher, 
But uh, the opportunity was a really, really good fit for me to work as a reading specialist. And then that morphed into the opportunity to be a reading coach. Um, and that sent me uh, scrambling back to the university for additional training, because anybody who's taken on that role <laughs> knows that it's very, very different than teaching. Um, and I connected with some folks at the University of Oregon that led to um, a doctoral career, doctoral program, which then led to um, my being a professor and researcher. And uh, but my connection to the classroom has always been so strong that uh, being outside the university now is a good fit for me. It gives me opportunity to work with uh, schools and agencies and classrooms and individual teachers um, uh, now around the world. I do I do work internationally, although most of my work is in the is in the United States. But yeah, James, it's been an interesting um, trajectory, but teaching kids and especially teaching kids to read um, has been a theme for over 50 years in my life. We appreciate the story. That's, that's awesome. As school psychologists, um, we are always looking at uh, the challenges that, that children have in learning to read, um, which brings up the issue of dyslexia. I'm wondering how you would describe it. Well, it's one of those things that uh, we're learning a lot more about. That's uh, been fascinating for me, having been in this career now for many decades um, and uh, having two children, one of whom uh, took us a while to figure it out. But she has dyslexia. Of course, she's not a young child anymore, grown adult person. But I've lived with that issue both as a practitioner and as a parent. And my own understanding of dyslexia has definitely shifted and grown and deepened um, by experience, but also by the newer research. So there is still uh, there are still debates about some of the nuances around dyslexia, but there's a lot of agreement in uh, at least in the in the uh, research community that what we refer to when we mean dyslexia is uh, is a anomaly. We could call it that of of children's brains that they are born with. It is it is something that is neurobiological. There seems to be some hereditary factors in it, but that one tiny, <laughs> uh, irrelevant in a lot of ways, part of the brain has some difficulties uh, that probably wouldn't cause anybody any problems except when we try to learn to read. And children with dyslexia, that part of the brain has difficulty processing auditory components of words. Uh, and it has nothing to do with hearing, although children who have hearing problems have a lot of the characteristics of dyslexia. They often find learning to read very difficult, but the causal nature is very different. So in general, we would say children with dyslexia hear perfectly well. But once the sounds get into the brain, that part of the brain that does the work of taking this this string of sounds um, uh, and and dividing them and identifying that those strings of sounds are actually words and then down to the those words are strings of individual sounds that we call phonemes, that those 
phonemes are very difficult for a dyslexic brain to distinguish. Um, so there's a, there are continuing conversations about variants of dyslexia. Some maybe have this type of dyslexia or this other factor in dyslexia, but there's quite a bit of agreement that, um, that that's really what we think of dyslexia. And, and that comes with really good news because of all the things we've also learned about the brain and things like neuroplasticity and the ability of brains to be rewired, if you will, through powerful, appropriate, early, if possible, intervention, um, that we can rewire those dyslexic brains um, and have children achieve um, adequate, if not um, uh, really quite proficient levels of reading, writing, and spelling. What great definitions, Jen. We really appreciate it. I think the idea of auditory processing, um, phonemes being so key to that reading aspect and any sort of reading challenges um, is quite insightful. Um, Jen, I'm wondering, from a school psychologist's lens, uh, we often also just look at the numbers as part of the decision-making process when we're determining diagnostic eligibility um, for dyslexia. Um, and I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying in my brain to reconcile this. You know, on the one hand, we of course want to look at the student's history, um, what interventions have been tried, have they been resistant, what are their different weaknesses? And on the other hand, we also look at the numbers, how do they measure up in terms of their cognitive abilities relative to their academic, specifically reading skills. Um, would you say uh, that reading comprehension is something that plays a role uh, when you're thinking about dyslexia, or is it specifically just word decoding? Uh, when I look at the research-based definitions, well, first of all, let me back up to say, every time we talk about reading, we also need to be talking about comprehension because reading is, there is no reading without comprehension. We can, we can talk about the decoding of words, figuring out what the print says at the word level and the phrase level and the sentence level. And that's a huge part of reading, but that is the part of reading that we call decoding. When we use the term reading, we're talking about decoding and understanding uh, what has been read. So uh, yes, anytime we're talking about reading, we should be talking about comprehension. However, when we're talking about students with dyslexia, in terms of looking at the research-based definitions, in general, the children with dyslexia um, once they get through that hurdle of figuring out how to decode words, in general, do not have problems with comprehension. The comprehension um, for our children with dyslexia, when we're talking just about that uh, that disorder, um, generally they don't have problems with that. And it's one of the ways that we can start to make determinations at a really young level with our children with dyslexia, that um, we can kind of take comprehension out of the picture. We can check their language proficiency, their vocabulary, their understanding of, of text that's read to them. Um, and they generally just, that's, that is at the normal or advanced level for most of those children. It's when we get down to working at the word level um, that our children with dyslexia have difficulty. Mm -hmm. And so that brings up a really good point that oral language listening comprehension plays an important role in kind of uh, seeing or understanding the puzzle. 
right? Because that's the comprehension piece that we're looking at. If they're able to comprehend through oral information, then that tells us that, hey, this might be really a word reading issue. And that's that's what's bogging down the reading comprehension. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. In our school system, we sometimes fail to collect data or we collect it, but we don't know how best to use it. What are some key points about collecting data and making informed decisions about our students' instruction? I love this question. I have become, uh, over the years, increasingly a fan of data, which really surprised me. If I had to go back (laughs) to the beginning of my career, I think I would uh, recognize that my orientation to data early on was very much like a lot of teachers. It's just one more hurdle, something I have to get out of the way. I have to do this testing or I have to listen to the results of from the school psychologist. And then and then because I want to get into the teaching, that's what's most important. And data is maybe a little confusing and it takes time and all of those things. But what I found um, fairly early on, partly because of the excellent training that I had, is that, yes, Teachers are so absolutely correct that we want to get to the teaching and the intervention um, as quickly as possible, but we will never be able to optimally um, provide instruction intervention without good data. And that becomes the rub in the real world of schools where we don't have enough time, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough people, um, and we have, in fact, usually an overabundance of ways to collect data some of which are very valuable and some of which, um, even though widely popular and widely used, don't really provide us with the data that informs instruction, optimally informs instruction. So, the, the, Kathleen, what I have learned to use, um, it helped me organize my thinking. And when I'm working with teachers or practitioners, um, I think it helps them to think about organizing data around three primary questions. Um, and uh, because there's always so many questions we can ask about, I've got a child sitting in front of me who's struggling, uh, that I, I could probably come up with 500 questions. But in terms of data for planning effective instruction intervention, the first question that um, researchers are now using to to organize their thinking around data is a question um, about the whole universe of kids, all the kids sitting in front of me, all the first graders, all the fourth graders, whatever it is, which of these kids are on track and which of these kids are not. That is a, 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 and we could, in terms of who needs help or who might need help. And that turns, gives us uh, what we, sh- in order to answer that question, we should turn to a body, a category of assessments called screening assessments. And we have lots of research about what are optimal screening assessments, and, and uh, they all should be quick. Um, universal. We give them to all students. They can be repeated um, and they give us some and they have benchmarks. So we have some clear guidance about that. Who might need help by giving a screening assessment? So once we've answered that question, the next question, obviously, to me as a teacher would be, okay, I found a student who might need help. The next question then is, what help do they need? And that turns this then to a whole other body of assessments that we would call diagnostic skills assessment. Different 
in many ways from a lot of the assessments that school psychologists use, which are more to categorize and evaluate in terms of a big picture. These are the kinds of assessments, diagnostic skills assessments that teachers should be, classroom teachers, specialists should use. Um, in reading, that would be the skills assessments. Uh, what is their strength um, or need around phoneme awareness? What is their strength or need around phonics? What is their strength or need around vocabulary, fluency, comprehension? We look at those uh, uh, assessments um, and administer them uh, appropriate to the age and need of the student. We don't need to do huge batteries of assessments, but we figure out what the student needs. We use those to then plan our instruction. If they have strengths in phoneme awareness and phonics, but they're struggling with fluency, okay, now I can tailor my instruction for, for really focusing in on fluency, vocabulary, comprehension. But then the, that a third question should come up, and this is really key and one that is underutilized, I think, in classrooms. And that third question, uh, I like to frame in terms of, is the work working? It's uh, we those are the that is the question that should turn our attention to the body of assessments called progress monitoring assessments that I know all teachers progress monitor their children in some way, but it's often very informal. And what we have found, especially for the students who struggle with reading and writing and spelling, if we more formally ask the question, is the work working? Um, is the student making learning goals? Is there progress? Um, then we can make adjustments uh, because if it's not working, um, I know I'm working really hard, the student's working really hard, but is all this work working? Uh, if it's not, we need to find make that determination as quickly as possible. And lucky for us in the field of reading, we do have assessments that can help us make those Sometimes challenging decisions um, or determinations if the work is working, is progress being made. Um, but those are the, the those are the ways, Kathleen, that I would recommend to a school that they start to relook oftentimes at the data that they're collecting. Often they're collecting too much data or they don't know what the only reason we collect data is to answer an important question, I think. Um, and, and we want to look for the assessments that do that as quickly, efficiently, accurately as possible. Um, but we want to know what question we're answering. So I think we flip the script a little bit and stop looking at the assessments and go back to the questions. Go back to those essential questions. Who might need help? What kind of help do they need? Is the work working? Then go find the most efficient, effective assessments to answer that question. At what point do you think those um, categorizing assessments come into play for school psychs? Um, well, I th there are assessments that we can begin to use to answer some of those questions at, at in preschool. We certainly have them in kindergarten. We have some well-established uh, evidence-based assessments that help make those determinations, answer those questions around reading and some other um, academic areas as well. But um, in reading, for sure, in kindergarten, that we can do age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate assessments that could inform a classroom teacher, a parent, um, a school psychologist uh, about whether students are on track um, what kind of where are their skill weaknesses or strengths? 
Um, and then if intervention is being provided or instruction, and in kindergarten certainly is, um, are kids making expected progress? So early, we can do that early, James. Got it. Uh, I, I think in um, certain districts that I've talked to other psychs about, uh, it's very much been we don't do assessments for dyslexia uh, before a certain grade, before a certain yeah. age. Yes. Um, I'm wondering what your take is on that. Oh, I have a take on that very strongly. <laughs> the reluctance to identify dyslexia early has some legitimacy to it because of the need to rule out a student's difficulty learning to read, write, or spell, all of those go so closely together, uh, that may be, how do we say that that problem is due to what we would call dyslexia, because there's no blood test or brain scan that we can do. We have to we have to look at behavioral characteristics. So this student is struggling with learning to read, write or spell or read, write and spell. Is that due to inappropriate or ineffective instruction or or lack of background knowledge or 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 something else? Or is it dyslexia? Uh and we really have difficulty making that determination really early on because we haven't had the opportunity to give them sufficient instruction. So what, but we can't wait to provide intervention. That's the key. We need to be doing intervention and we now have people um, looking at three-year-olds and four-year-olds and assessments that indicate that they based on, on, on benchmarks that we've established that three and four year olds, we can start to determine who's going to have ease in learning to read, write and spell and who's going to have difficulty. And we can start doing age appropriate intervention. Of course, intervention with a three and four year old looks really different than an eight or nine year old, but, uh, but we can do it. And we should be doing it because all the evidence says that the earlier we start intervening with those kinds of difficulties, uh, the brain has more neuroplasticity, um, the, all kinds of great things happen. And then the student doesn't experience failure um, because we do know that reading, writing and spelling build on success, that once you can read a few words, you read more words. Uh, we want to get that good thing started as soon as possible. So all those, all that being said, let's worry. I wish we could. And I know that policies and procedures uh, get in the way sometimes. But if I could wish something, I would wish that we worry less about labeling dyslexia and treat the behaviors that indicate a child is having problem because the research is very clear that the treatment is really not different. Kids learn to read. Readers learn to become readers in the same way. It's just the intensity of the instruction, the duration of the instruction, the dosage of the instruction. But what they learn to read, learn, need to learn, need to be taught is exactly the same. So, um, yes, I understand the reluctance of labeling too early. And I'm kind of inclined to say, yeah, let's not label too early, but forget labeling. If this child is struggling with phoneme awareness at age four and five, this could be dyslexia. It might not be dyslexia. It doesn't matter in terms of what we do about it. 
Thanks, Jan. That's so insightful and really great information. Uh, and actually, you very nicely transitioned us into our next kind of uh, umbrella topic here. So we started off with assessment, and now we're looking more at the intervention side of things. And just wondering what some resources or ideas you've got in the intervention side uh, for teachers to be thinking about and for the school systems to be supporting their teachers in doing? Well, um, that's always a complex question because different systems are different and their students are different in terms of their needs. But um, we do know that, uh, especially for our students who are going to find learning to read, write, and spell difficult, that uh, starting early, but also using instruction that has the characteristic of being systematic and explicit. There are other certainly characteristics of uh, instruction that have been proven to be valuable, like comprehensive instruction. We don't ever want to uh, just focus in on one aspect of learning to read, like phonics or phoneme awareness or or just comprehension, for that matter. It needs to be comprehensive in terms of its um, focus. But those two words, systematic and explicit, have really been um, studied in the re in research for quite a few decades now and found that the more systematic, the more carefully planned instruction, having a, a very thoughtful scope and sequence that uh, that does address the progression of learning. So looking for materials that have that well-designed aspect of it, built in lots of opportunity for uh, review because some students are going to get it after one or two examples. Some are going to need 15 examples. Some are going to need 115 examples. So that's part of looking for materials that support that in a systematic way. And then the aspect of explicit instruction, which you will not talk um, to any uh, researcher in the field of reading that doesn't talk about ex the value, uh, importance, and even necessity of explicit instruction at certain stages for all children. So that is um, boiled down <laughs> into a real nutshell. It is explicit instruction involves three basic steps, showing the children or demonstrating what it is that you're wanting them to learn providing guided practice, leading them through um, accurate practice of that new skill a sufficient number of times so that they can move to the third step of explicit instruction, which is independent practice. All children, all learners learning anything new benefit from explicit instruction, whether you're learning to read words or whether you're learning to play the piano or whether you're learning to ski, having somebody show you what it looks like guide you, prevent, provide some scaffolding and some supports and some, some, some help with that, and then practice, independent practice. That's necessary for all skills. So when we're looking at teaching this incredibly complex thing called reading, um, that's what I would want teachers uh, and curriculum directors and school leaders and parents to be looking for materials that have um, those components to them. 
And there are many. There's not one curriculum. If there were, we could all just not have these podcasts or anything. Just go out and get that <laughs> curriculum and all kids would read and it would all be so easy. Um, and we know it's not. But there are certainly curriculum materials that have those components built into them. And there are materials that don't. Um, and uh, we want to be sure that teachers have high quality materials that they're that they're using in this very complex task. And we all struggle to stay up to date with research. Um, and um, I'm just wondering what the research is saying now about phonological awareness, phonemic awareness, and the introduction of visual letters uh, to develop that sound letter relationship. And when that is, when that introduction is most effective or, or should be happening with our kids? Yeah, well, that's a good question, Kathleen. And it is something that even researchers are talking a lot about now because um, of some deeper understandings of research. It's actually not some new evidence that has come our way about the value of connecting phoneme awareness to the grapheme representation, that that, that connection. Um, was made clear in research, but I think we got off track a little bit and separated phoneme awareness as something um, completely separate. When we start talking about it, it's a separate thing. When we want to differentiate what's, a, what's phoneme awareness and phonics, we have to talk about them as two separate things. And, and they have been researched often as two separate things. And when we talk to teachers about them and say phoneme awareness you don't even need your eyes to do phoneme awareness. You simply need to um, hear the sounds in a word, mug, that the word mug that we drink coffee from has three individual phonemes. The word shut um, has four letters, but when we're talking about phonemes, shut, it has three phonemes. Getting the brain to have that level of awareness has nothing to do with the eyes. And we've spent a lot of time talking about phoneme awareness that way. And that has led us down sometimes an instructional response to that that's incorrect, that, OK, we can turn off the lights and just say sounds. And that's that's an important piece of learning to read. Um, but when we really look at the research, we find that the uh, learning phonemes uh, along with the graphemes, phoneme awareness and phonics at the same time is actually best for almost all children. Uh, so all the researchers that I follow when grappling with your nuanced question about when, <laughs> um, how do we do this? When do we start? Um, that's the challenge because what the researchers will always say is as soon as possible. They will use that term. And what the heck does that mean to a practitioner in their classroom with all these little five-year-olds, uh, none of whom are phonemically aware or very few of them? What do we do? So we do auditory activities. We talk about the word mug. Mug has three sounds. And using explicit instruction, I would say, listen, my turn. I'll do it. M-a-g. 
Say it with me. Here's the guided practice. Mmm, ugh, we're doing it together. We'll do that many times. And then try it by yourselves. I'm going to clap for the sounds in mug. You say the sounds in mug. We can do that. But what the research says is all of that is tremendously supported by actually looking at the letters or the graphemes that represent those sounds. So um, I think uh, what best practice would be would be to get to introduce a few letters as early as possible and use high utility letters, M being one in the English language, A being another, S being another, T being another. Um, get one vowel in there and a few um, consonants. Um, and those might be, I mean, nobody has done the, the studies to say those are the, but when you look at English words, um, M, T, A, and S, you can make a whole lot of words with those. And that's the point of all of this. It's not knowing the sounds. We learn the sounds so that we can decode, so that we can read words, so that we can comprehend. So we want to get to there as quickly as possible. So I might start in a kindergarten classroom with clapping sounds then I might use visuals of tiles that don't have letters on them. Here's a here's a tile or a token. Mm. Here's another blank tile or token. Uh. Here's another blank token. G. And then I will teach them. Now let's learn letters. This letter says mmm, and we learn that. I do it. Mmm. Say it with me. Mmm. Your turn. Mmm. We learn a few letters, and then we say uh, we connect that phoneme awareness to the phonics or the grapheme phoneme connection, a few letters at a time, two letters at a time, three letters at a time, get that learned really well, then add a fourth letter and another vowel um, and build on it that way. Um, and as soon as possible, what we know, going back to one of the first questions about dyslexia, children with dyslexia don't get that relationship because they're not hearing it. They're not processing it. So the number of repetitions are going to mean need to be much, much, much higher for our uh, neurotypical and typically or advanced readers. We want to move all children as quickly as we possibly can move them. So we don't keep all students at this sounding out stage, uh, but some are going to need it for a very, very long time. So um, that brings in that we do it as soon as possible and to the level of dosage and depth um, that each child needs. But I think that's where we're moving toward our understanding of what we would call best practice. Thank you so much. Uh, that was so insightful. And uh, I, I feel quite excited and that's just good. very interesting. And I'm wondering, um, what are one or two actionable items that school psychologists could take to support uh, students and particularly parents? Because I do get a lot of questions um, from parents as I do my debrief as to what can we do? And also, of course, teachers. Yes, yes. Um, well, 
I think going back to the data question, I, I think it's very empowering to the whole community of, of student support to have uh, data such as screening data and progress monitoring data that really is uh, classroom teachers are capable of, of collecting that without adding huge burdens to what they're doing. As a parent, uh, it would be very reassuring to me to have a teacher who can show me where my student is uh, at the beginning of the year, the middle of the year and the end of the year, rather than just saying she's doing fine or she's not. What does that what does that mean? Um, and we can use um, we can use uh, good classroom level data tools. Um, and I think school psychologists who are so informed about assessment can play a big play a role in providing some guidance and professional development for teachers in how to do that and, and how to use that with parents. Um, uh, so that would be that would certainly be one thing. Um, a resource that I uh, all, I recommend this resource nearly on a daily basis for that whole group that we just talked about. Um, and that's a website called Reading Rockets. Um, it was put in place specifically for parents, but is widely used by um, uh, administrators, leaders, and classroom teachers. It's just a, a clearinghouse in a lot of ways of great information. It is well vetted, so things don't get put on that website um, that aren't quite accurate and founded in good evidence-based information. And I know they update it because I've been asked to do some articles for reading rockets and they come back to me every once in a while and say, would you like to update this? And usually, yes, I would, because <laughs> research keeps coming and evolving and our thinking gets more nuanced. So um, I, ch I send everybody, no matter where they are in the process, to reading rockets because it's it's easily to search for what you're looking for. The answers there are accurate and trustworthy um, and written in a way that's not the way that neuropsychologists would talk to each other, but that uh, a parent um, or a, a teacher can understand. And Jan, on that note, so in addition to the Reading Rockets website, are there and your work there, are there any other projects that you're working on you'd love that you'd like to share with our audience? Uh, well, I know that you have uh, uh, interviewed my friend and colleague Nancy Young, a, a Canadian colleague that I've uh, enjoyed working with over the last few years. And Nancy and I are working on some uh, fun projects together related to her amazing infographic, um, the ladder of reading and writing. So we have some things yet to formally announce, but we're working on projects related to that, and that's to me very exciting. Um, I'm also working with a, a group of folks, including practitioners and those amazing neuropsychologists and and uh, uh, and uh, curriculum developers and leaders in the coaching community, um, in a little group that we've we've called ourselves the Peaceniks. And uh, our the reason we came together and the reason we came up with that name was because we know that in the field of reading that we care so much about, there are these ongoing, not helpful discussions about who's right and who's wrong. Um, and we wanted to look for opportunities to bridge those those various opinions and beliefs about 
optimal practices around reading. Um, we came together originally before the the pandemic and really envisioned at some point having a meeting of people who might represent both sides of that debate. Um, and we moved on from that because the pandemic prevented that. So we've been meeting for a couple of years now online and just recently um, uh, developed or, or created a paper. We wrote a paper on um, what we thought was uh, a reasonable way to approach uh, the teaching of phoneme awareness and phonics and where it should begin and something we felt was a, a paper that could be seen as balanced and appropriate for representing both sides of the debate. Uh, and that uh, we sent that out to a lot of uh, really highly regarded researchers and, and leaders in the reading world and got many, many people to sign on to this paper. Um, and that is actually um, published on the Reading Rockets website. So th that was the culmination of a whole lot of work that we hope will be um, at, at minimum a, a, a discussion point for people who uh, are feeling confused about where to start. So um, I'm very proud of that work as well. Thanks for sharing that. Jan, we'll be sure to link that in our show notes, uh, as well as just the website for Reading Rockets. Uh, sounds like a great resource for teachers, for parents, uh, for psychs too. Mm -hmm. um, and with that, we will end our episode. Thank you again for your time and expertise, Jan. We appreciate it. To our listeners, do stay tuned for our next episodes. You can find us on Apple and Google Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, please rate and review. And in the meantime, we'd love if you connected with us on our socials at BCASP Certified on Twitter and Instagram and BC Association of School Psychologists on Facebook. Thank you.